electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Brian Kelly, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, useless and dirty. Words usually heard on an episode of The Real Housewives finding their way into an explosive report from central banks about Bitcoin. So, what's behind the nasty words? We've got a special report. Plus, a hot weekend for Tesla, another electric vehicle catching fire, and an email from Elon Musk to employees that has all of Wall Street talking. So why does the stock continue to go higher? But first, we start off with the World Cup of pain. It's not a win for the global markets. Around the world, some of the largest <laughs> markets are struggling over the past month. Brazil down oh. a whopping 16% with China, France, and Germany all under pressure. And just like the U.S. is sitting out the real World Cup in Russia, the S&P 500 up 2% in the past month. But that could be trouble, too. Check out this chart. Since the Fed raised rates and said there would be more ahead in 2018, we have been under pressure, down more than 400 points since the highs of that day. So is today's selling less about the trade war fears and more about the global sell-off? And is the U.S. heading for more pain ahead? Two-part question. Two-part question. Let's go! Don't you like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. That was good. Yeah, yeah. They're going to play that all show. So if you want to change the channel, now's the time to do it, folks. I think the short answer is I don't think today was about tariffs. You know, last Tuesday night, we played a game, Hawk or Dove. It was like mm. the Neil Young album. And you asked him, he said hawkish. You asked me, I said hawkish. But the AT&T Time Warner deal should sort of supersede that and the market will be fine. I was wrong, but I do think the market's concerned that maybe the Fed put is not in place. Now, I don't want to get crazy because the market hasn't done anything catastrophic and the VIX is still south of 13. But I do think that Fed put that everybody has relied on for the last eight years is no longer there. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's a major surprise. In fact, what he said in that press conference was, I think the economy is great. And yet we're still four hikes away from neutral Fed funds rates. So if you think about it, there's still a lot of Fed in our future. And yes, I think that's reason to be concerned. I, having said that, again, the economy is in great shape. So the question is, are we now truly the strongest player in the World Cup, which we're not even in, by the way? And that's a metaphor, folks, because I know that. But there, there it is. There it is. But the problem is, if you look around, you know, emerging markets, which is a, certainly a, an asset class I cover a lot, I think you've got some breakdowns, idiosyncratic, that I don't know has to mean you're seeing a global breakdown. I think bottom line here is EPS is what it all comes down to, and I think it's not bad. A higher well, dollar is also playing into all of this. It is, but you know what? I would say the higher dollar for right now is actually a sign of being pretty positive, right? Because what you're seeing is all the money coming from the periphery, emerging markets, Europe, all of that, coming back <coughs> into the U.S. So we could be in a period where you start to see a higher dollar, lower bond yields, because people want to buy our bond yields because they yield more than the rest of the world, like Germany, and higher stock prices. It could be, it's kind of a weird scenario, but if we are the best economy in the world, then all the assets should come here. Six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road, yeah, be concerned about what's going on in the emerging markets. But for today, I think the market's told you everything you need to hear. Well, I think it goes back to what you guys were talking about, emerging markets. You know, back in the summer of 2015, the world was really concerned about the health of China's uh, growth for, for all intents and purposes. We had some major, major uh, risk asset volatility 
in August of 2015, in the first quarter of 2016, a lot of it had to do with the fact that how fast was China growing. When you think about what's going on right now, so yes, our growth, people are projecting above 3%, maybe 4% this quarter. And when you think about China, it's literally been stuck at 6.8%. If these trade tariffs, if this turns into a war, I think the question becomes, what happens to China's growth and what does it do for the rest of the globe? And I think that's one of the things why maybe our markets are kind of just churning a little bit here. And we also, we're seeing some weak data. I mean, Tim, you saw the retail sales in China last month was the slowest pace since 2003 when they had the SARS outbreak. So these are the sorts of things I think it makes sense as we get in the summer to keep an eye on. I I think that's right. But I I think China right now being stuck at 6.8, 6.9, their industrial numbers are effectively near three-year highs. If you look at China and and their demand on commodity prices, commodity prices are near four-and-a-half-year highs. We haven't seen copper fall out of bed. Oil is right near the highs. Uh, Metals prices are right near the highs. Record lumber prices we talked about in closing bell. You have steel prices at record highs. So if the world's coming to an end here, shouldn't we see, or if China's about to fall down, I don't think we'd see this. I don't think we're saying that the world's coming to an end no. at all, but it's not a relative basis. But, but you have yeah. to ask That's yourself, we're, we this, we're this far into the way, World Cup. Anybody know the World Cup? Yeah. Really? Yeah. You know what the best I, part of the China World Cup is, Tim? Don't hear it. But. Don't hear it. There it is. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Stop. Dan saying stop. Now all the now it's salty Dan right off the top. Why not? BK was saying something. I was saying something. What I was saying is that the world doesn't have to fall apart, but you can say that, listen, we're so far into this uh, economic cycle, we're so far into this recovery, it would be very natural to have another correction, be very natural to have a slowdown in the economy, but I do think you need to be concerned about China. I mean, some of the stuff that's going on there, there are major, major companies that have gone bankrupt. We don't hear about it a lot because they've simply papered over it and put state resources towards it, but if that continues, that can be a problem. It's not today, though. The market's already told right. you. Listen, we're, it's going up here in the U.S. Trade war also, let's let's be clear, this is not going to hurt these economies right out of the gates. It's hurting sentiment. Yes, you hear about it in a housing survey. You hear about it in regional Fed surveys. But, uh, you know, and Brian didn't just say this. And so here's the point. China is not about to fall out of the sky. And, and the people, the, the China bears and the doomsayers in 2015 have been so wrong for so long. Well, well Tim, why, and, why and did I, the Shanghai Composite close at a new 52-week uh, low on Friday? Why is it down 15% from its 52-week? I'm not saying, the, I'm not calling liquid- doom and gloom. I'm just saying, like, if we're looking for things that are that maybe market like trades on looking. liquidity dynamics. They've been, they've been reeling in some liquidity. They've been targeting certain excesses. And I think it's highly speculative. I don't think right, the so Shanghai's ever excesses- been doesn't that have the potential economy. to make, make um, economic conditions tighter? And, and so what we, we started out talking about what are the potential effects of a tit-for-tat trade skirmish going into something but broader. They're, they're, and that's they're not good, and right. they're affecting sentiment right now, and I think that's ultimately what we're saying. But right. um, I think China is in a much better place either on in the industrial side, on the retail sales side, than they were three years ago. And frankly, I think the global, global economy being stronger helps China more than it helps us. I, I think it helps emerging markets more than it helps us. So maybe that's you know, the indictment we're saying. So we started the conversation, is it more China? I still think it's more Fed, the U.S. Fed specifically. I'm not certain the Fed put is in play. I understand the headlines about China. That's important. But I do think it's all about central banks. It's not even close to it. I mean, so I'm agreeing with you and saying, I mean, take that out out of the story. The Fed put is gone. 
That, that's the big thing here. For the last eight or nine years, we've had every central bank in the world throwing liquidity at us. This is why this market is supposed to struggle here. This is why this market is not ridiculously cheap. Because we have risk to the downside wait, wait, wait. when it comes to growth around the world, effectively, right? We've got a higher dollar. We've got a Fed that's still in play and a Fed that doesn't want to hold up the market. And we've anymore. got a NASDAQ yes. at so all-time highs to the and we've got the Russell at all-time highs. I mean, what are we talking about? It's not like it's like the market fell apart. We're down 50 basis points today. <laughs> and we've got all-time highs in a lot of stocks. Where's so what the are you fire? doing here? What are you doing here? Stay Somebody long. swap Stay this long. bear suit. I mean, <laughs> I know, in a big, well, big way. Pre- listen, I'm predisposed to be bearish, but the market's telling me that it wants to go higher. And by the market, I mean the U.S. stock market. All right. Well, our next guest says there's one place to hide out in the market right now. Let's get to the chart master, Carter Worth, the cornerstone mapper, to find out what, where that is. Hey, Carter. Hi. So, well, both a place to respect but to be cautious about at the same time. So let's... Uh, and obviously, FANG, the acronym, has taken its place with .com and Nifty 50 and BRIC. But first, the broader thrust of growth versus value. I've got here the Russell 1000 pure growth in blue, the Russell 1000 pure value down here, and then the index itself of which these two parts are derived. This is not the way to compare something, of course. The way to compare something is to hold the aggregate as a constant, the next chart. I'm going to hold the orange line as a constant, and then what we see is the true uh, spread or continued business as usual on the street, at least for the last year and a half, growth value. New highs, new lows. And one could think it's just a super cap phenomenon because it's got the Googles and Amazons. It's, it's down the uh, cap chain as well. Here, for instance, is the Russell mid-cap pure growth, pure value versus the Russell mid-cap is the same exercise. Let's freeze the orange line and hold it as a constant. So what we've got here, same circumstance. Values essentially making new lows, growth making new highs. Now, at what point is it overdone? Uh, that's the key, and that will be the key for the market, uh, surely. Let's look at this now very popular NYSE FANG Plus Index. You can actually trade futures on it as of November 8th of last year. It's uh, sort of 10 super growth names that are... are, are uh, in the technology space, and you, you know the names. Collectively, they're about uh, $4.2 trillion, um, almost the same as the bottom 270 stocks in the S&P. So let's look at this index chart. Here it is. First, returns. The annualized return since inception of this index is 29% since 2014. By contradistinction, we're already up 36% this year. We're annualizing at 93%. So the issue is, are we a little hot? We are a little hot. Um, in fact, I would draw the lines this way on the chart. Here it is, past two years. And here um, is the trend line in which the index, and literally, we stopped over and over and over at the high, at the low, and we are essentially right at the high again. My hunch is it's a time to reduce, take some profits. Does that mean that the other parts of the market come back that have been lagging like financial industrials? To be determined. But this is a little hot. Carter comes over. Of course, Carter. Come on over, Carter. Of course, Carter. Michelle will bring the chair in. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. How are you? Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Michelle. Get my water bottle. I mean, everybody's thanking Michelle. When Ryan was here, it was like, get out of here, Ryan. I thanked Ryan as well. Michelle, she's the greatest. I thanked Ryan as well. Sorry. Anyway. Um, that last chart, though, it, it looked still, even if there was a drawdown, like it was still well within that channel. So would you expect that to hit the bottom of the channel and then well, bounce so back? Well, so remember, it could just blow through the top and never look back, right? But we, right. It's, it's getting a bit sensational. It's taking on a life of its own. And it's happening while small cap stocks are outperforming. So they're both 
um, in many ways, a speculative kind of thing. People clustering in fewer and fewer names as global growth is in question, and then trying to play small cap, also idiosyncratic domestic names that they feel don't have risk from the global economy. It all sets up for that looks to be the top of the channel. I'd rather reduce if I were a long-only player. So, Carter, I follow your work very closely. Well, thank um, you for you've that. been an unabashed fang bull for a very long time. How many times have you made this sort of call? Obviously, the lines are the lines, but how many times have you made this call over the last year or so? Well, just it's a little bit like if it ain't broke, you know, just yeah. don't fix it. it it's, it, it's working. Now, at some point, that is sort of ridiculous. It just can't keep going forever. I think it is a time to reduce a bit because at this point, again, the money, just the sheer market cap, again, $4.2 more than the bottom 270 stocks in the S&P. Who's the incremental buyer? Carter, that channel. Th if, thank you for that softball, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it blows through that channel, do you get more bullish or more bearish? That's right. So there are two ways through. That means that you, you, are you reaching the end stage? Because end stage can carry quite a bit further. It could be parabolic, and it could last months. Um, my inclination is to, if it has that were to happen, to sell more aggressively and to pull in even more. So is your call for reducing this, is that also a call on the broader markets? Well, you, you could you you seem, can make that. You seem sort well, of wondering here, whether or not the, the other sectors Remember, pick up. the broader market is stuck. We know the SP is up 3.7% year to date. The equal weight is up 27 and the median performance of the S&P is up like 1.2. We basically have gone nowhere. But if you look at semiconductors and if you look at software companies, so certain parts of tech are, are exploding sure, with FANG. In fact, they're outperforming. So Microsoft maybe this is indicative of just a change in the economy. In, in other words, where the economy is driven from and that these stocks are the ultimate way to play growth. And maybe this is a new era. That's right. And it, it, it is all that. But as we know, all downtrends are characterized by countertrend rallies and all uptrends have countertrend sell-offs. We're probably at the point where a countertrend sell-off could be expected. Carter, thank you. Thanks. Carter Braxenworth at Cornerstone mm. Macro. Would you reduce Fang Plus? I love your work, Carter. That's fantastic, Dan. I was <laughs> I thought that Facebook was stopped at 155 after the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. I didn't think it was going north of 160 for the rest of the year. And here we are covering close to 200. I still think the move to the upside has been a little bit too much too fast. And I would be taking profits in Facebook. My question would be, a sell-off in FANG, how much of a harbinger of really bad things does it mean for the broader market? Right. And I would suggest maybe a lot, quite right. frankly. And, and to you, the bull of the desk, <laughs> yes. oddly, which is for the day, which is bizarre. Be. It's like exactly. we're in a parallel universe right now. Um, but if, if FANG Plus pulls back and maybe the other sectors don't necessarily pick up, yeah, aren't I, you worried? I, yeah, am I worried? I mean, we, listen, we will know when this market's going to crack. You will have just this massive run-up and sell-off. It'll be a 1,000-point range on the Dow for the day, tons of volume. It'll be so obvious. We've had a 7, 10, 9-year bull run. It'll be so obvious. So if we get a 5% pullback or a 10% pullback, I'm less worried than I would be. I, I'll tell you where the other part I'll get worried. If we get that blow-off that I was asking Carter about, if all of a sudden we just rip higher, then I get very nervous. I, I, you know, I just feel like we've had a lot of rotation in this market over the last couple of years. There have been times where we've actually looked at the transports. They have outperformed. The banks have outperformed. Uh, emerging markets have outperformed. I mean, I, to me, until one of those things really falls out of the race, I think you're, you're, you're sideways. All right. Coming up, Tesla striking off one bad headline after another as the stock continues to soar as Tesla suddenly a Teflon trade, plus useless, unsafe, and dirty, words typically reserved for our Twitter feed. But this time, they are in a new report from central banks about Bitcoin. Our own crypto baller here, Brian Kelly, says there's a reason, though, behind the harsh words. And later, we are making Fast Money history. Top strategist Tony Dwyer 
is going to step up to the plate and tell us the one sucker he thinks is about to catch fire in his first ever fast pitch. But will he win over the traders? We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. An actress's video of a Tesla on fire and a fiery tweet from CEO Elon Musk, all part of Tesla's wild weekend. Phil Bose in Chicago with all the details. Hey, Phil. And that weekend also included a fire at the Tesla paint shop. That's the latest news, Melissa. Uh, this was just confirmed uh, by Tesla that Elon Musk did send out an email about a fire in the company's paint shop. Happened on Sunday. Shut down production briefly. The fire is not considered suspicious, but given the fact that everybody's focused on what's happening with production at the plant, especially production of the Model 3, it's going to get a fair amount of attention. Speaking of Elon Musk and emails and production, we did, CNBC.com did obtain an email from Elon Musk that he sent on Friday. Now, stay with me on these days here, essentially saying, look, we've got eight days left this month for Tesla to hit its goal of 700 Model 3s per day. In that email, he said, radical improvements will be needed in order to hit that output goal of 5,000 per week, which again, is what they need in order to be cash flow positive. And so he sent out the email saying, we will reach, or I should say Nomura sent out an up, update today on its ratings for the stock, saying Tesla will reach a rate of 5,000 per week by the end of June. So Nomura says they're gonna get there, that said, Expect the production rate could be extrapolated from prior targets, and a sustained 5,000 per week Model 3 production rate may not be achieved until some, sometime in the third quarter of 2018. And then you have Elon Musk sending out a tweet saying, you know what, for those who are questioning whether or not we're going to make it or not, they have, meaning the shorts, have about three weeks before their short positions explode. And as if that wasn't enough news from Tesla and Elon Musk over the last couple of days, there was the fire involving a Tesla Model S in West Hollywood. This was on Friday. Pretty dramatic video. We should point out here that the husband of actress Mary McCormick was driving this Model S. He was not injured. He escaped fine. The Tesla team is investigating what happened with this fire. The NTSB has not opened an investigation, but it is sending a specialist to watch the Tesla analysis of what happened so they can learn a little bit more about electric vehicle fire. So a lot of stuff happening with Tesla and a lot of stuff happening with Tesla and fires, Melissa. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately for uh, the NTSB, which has to keep track of all that. Phil, you know, in terms of the chronology of it, I, it was important to keep note of when these things happened because right. Musk's tweet on Sunday implies that the fire did not slow down achieving that rate of 700 a day. I mean, if, if Musk is going to get on Twitter and say, you shorts are going to be crushed in a couple of weeks when the, when the delivery numbers Correct. are released, uh, I would think that's a good sign for the bulls. Uh, I think, and, and look at what we're seeing with the stock. Yeah. I mean, call up this chart right now. This is the first time we're at 370 or higher since September of last year. And Melissa, if you go back to April 2nd, this stock is up 118 points. That's 47%. I mean, it's been an astounding move since the beginning of April. I think, if you want my opinion, and I know the traders are the ones who are paid to give their opinion, I think most of the, the bulls have already said whether or not they make it to 5000 per week by the end of the quarter, we think that, roughly speaking, they're going to be close to it, or by the beginning of next month, right. therefore, there's going to be a, a sigh of relief. And if they do have to go and ask for more uh, uh, money in the debt or the equity markets, I think people will say, well, at least they're at 5000 per week. 
Yeah. Phil, thank you. Phil about keeping bet. track of all the Tesla news. Um, according to Bespoke, or actually according to Phil, excuse me, Phil, 118 points gained since April's 2nd. It's a massive climb. Well, I mean, 280 was the number we've been flagging. So the stock's up 32% since that 280 breakthrough back on the upside that we've been flagging for quite some time. So the real question is, and Phil sort of addressed it, what do you do now with the stock, which is now bumping up against basically the levels that we topped out at some point last year? You're going to have a massive double top, which I don't think it's going to happen, or you're going to blow through the upside, which I do think it's going to happen because all the bad news to me has been you, the, the, the level of bad news over the last six months has been such that the shorts had every opportunity to bury this thing. They were successful about a month, haven't been successful since. I think the stock goes higher. Uh, yeah, I just think the language is kind of problematic when he talks about this push to get to a certain production level so they can get to cash flow positive. I think if you guys recall back in 2016, Q3, they made a similar push to get to profitability. When has the language never not well, been well, like this? But what I'm saying I mean, is, this it, is the story it, it, for what, Tesla. What, all I'm saying, it just doesn't really help. It doesn't, it's not necessary. I think it's good news that the stock is not trading off a fire in one of the cars, one car. You know, the fact that we had to say the NTSB has not gone to see what happened with the fire, great. Do they do that with GM or Ford every time there's a fire? So there's a lot of ridiculousness around the story. I just don't think it should come from Elon Musk as frequently as it does. It hasn't seemed to hurt the stock. We're up 118 points in a month. I mean, seemed to work pretty well for him today. And I got to tell you, if you're short this stock and you have the CEO of the company coming out and telling you oh, come you're going to get I mean, crushed, I, the, I don't want to stand against it. What, I mean, you can. Knock this, yourself out. But the, the, come on. What's this guy going to say? And this is a guy that loves talking about the he short. Might say I mean, he, he might say nothing. He might say nothing. To come out why, and say why that. Why would he suddenly change his Massive tone? regulatory this, this risk. Guy, but this is a guy that's he's been He's also in the past said that Tesla stock is overvalued. I mean, he's been, he has been out there talking about his stock in both positive and negative fashions. He, more than a CEO should, he takes it personally that people have shorted his stock. I mean, that's that's. I think that's ridiculous. I'm not surprised he's going after the shorts here. And by the way, it's been painful for those guys. All right, coming up, it's a fast money first. Top strategist Tony Dwyer stepping up to the plate to give us his first ever fast pitch. Can he win over the desk? And more importantly, the Twitterverse, we will find out. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. If you look at a business like a Netflix, for example, they invest a lot in tentpole shows that try to you know, get you to check out Netflix or subscribe. For us, our tentpole content is content created by your friends. And Snap CEO Evan Spiegel is making a lot of friends. And one of the traders says Snap could be the sleeper stock of the summer. And you won't believe how high he sees it going. Plus... That's what central banks are saying about Bitcoin. But BK says there's a reason behind the diss. And it's not what you think. He will break it down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Useless, unsafe, and dirty. Oh. Those are just a Sounds few of the like words God. a new report is using to <laughs> describe. I mean, I was waiting. It was just a matter of time. Okay, folks. It was the third time you said I was waiting. Who was going to say it was Dan, Sorry. BK, Tim? Tim. Sorry. Those are words used to describe Bitcoin. Okay, let's get back on topic. Let's get to Seema Modi back at headquarters for the details. Seema. Melissa, it's the Bank of Central Bankers slamming Bitcoin in a 24-page report questioning the validity of cryptocurrencies and the decentralized technology it operates on, asserting that cryptocurrencies are highly volatile especially when you compare it to the price of gold. BIS says it's because cryptocurrencies lack a central body which is dedicated to keeping the currency stable. 
Plus, they say transactions are costly. Bank of International Settlements head of research pointing out that Bitcoin fees peaked at $57 last December, underscoring why using Bitcoin over the U.S. dollar as a means of payment is neither cost effective nor logical. The bank also raising concerns over the vast amount of energy required to mine cryptocurrencies, which it claims could overwhelm the system and, quote, bring the Internet to a halt. The cryptocurrency community this morning fighting back. Monica Acquaintance of Kadena, a blockchain platform, says the industry is still in its infancy. Therefore, it's too early to analyze and make these grandiose projections. Melissa, the Bank of International Settlements may not see true value in cryptocurrencies, but the believers in the technology and its applications are sticking by it for now. All right. Seema, thank you. Seema Modi at headquarters. So what do you, I know you think that this is full of well, listen, useless no, information, no but. I understand. I mean, the, the report, I read it about three times this morning, and it's there are so many inconsistencies in it. They say, listen, you know, money's about trust and trust can fall apart. But by the way, trust us, we're the BIS. So here's the real here's what's going on is that Bitcoin itself is an existential threat to the central bankers. That's what this was designed. It was designed as an alternative financial system. With Bitcoin, you don't necessarily need a central banker. If you want one, go have, go have a ball. But in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency ecosystem, you don't need those central bankers. Not only that, you know, Bitcoin is an alternative here. So it's the new guard versus the old guard out there, right? So this is kind of like when the newspapers went online, all the newspaper editors said, ah, oh, that's never going to work. New guard, old guard. And then finally, the difference here is what the, what the whole thing about Bitcoin is peer to peer. It removes the middleman. And the middleman in this particular case is the BIS and the central bank. So Bitcoin is like the Napster of money. And that's what they don't like about it. I get what you're saying here, but one of the points is that you need to have users and this needs to solve a problem. So what so sure. are we when are we going to get to that point where we have users and that this is this is not just a token so, that's traded? Right, of course. So think about it. I think probably the markets and price had gotten way ahead of where the technology is. Remember in 1981, the San Francisco Examiner went online, took two and a half hours to download, download their newspaper. And people said, oh, this can never work to download pictures. It takes too long. That's where we are in Bitcoin. So you got to take, take a step back and put it in perspective. New technology as this technology grows, you will get more users. Hey, Beek, so this is central bankers, a group of them. Right? Isn't there a lot of talk about sovereign cryptocurrencies? And aren't these the same central bankers who may be very interested in this to solve some problems? Give us some, some color on that. Yeah, I'm not sure what problem a sovereign cryptocurrency solves. Right. The whole point of a the ability to, to to actually know where money's flowing in and out of your country. I mean, well, this is the big issue. And I, right. I'm, I'm on your side on this one. But I will say that there's a fundamental issue here is that governments can't not know what money's flowing in and out of their countries. I and totally I, agree. And I think that's, that's why they don't like it. That's that's the and problem. That's, that's, that is the existential threat. I don't know. Well, I don't know if it can't be overcome. I mean, it's being overcome in countries like Venezuela, like Zimbabwe, like Argentina. Where you can't trust the government. Where you can't so you trust the government. Right, exactly. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, Square, by the way, I mean, as much as we're talking about cryptocurrency, Square seeing a big boost today after the company announced that it has gotten a license that will let New York residents, New York State residents, buy and sell Bitcoin through its cash app. Look at that pop, 2.7%. So here's the ultimate game of would you rather in the well, like cryptocurrency space. Bitcoin or Square? 
Bitcoin or Square? I'll go with you first because you've been an investor. Yeah, I own both. I'm, I'm in Square right now. De- definitely Square because I fundamentally believe in the company. I believe that this is really a small business story. It's a software story. There's even a credit story there. Um, and I like the fact that they are very well positioned in this space. So, yes, Square. See, it's, it's interesting. I, I would say Bitcoin because I think, listen, really? you're down. We, I think we all understand what the downside is. The upside to me is ridiculous. I mean, the upside could be anywhere from an eight to a 10 bagger. I don't think you can say the same about Square. I will say about Square, people say it's expensive on valuation, but you're talking about a company that's going to grow earnings by can, 70%. So I love the Square story. Can I, can it's I not ask an a indictment question? on Square. Can I ask a question? question? Sorry. Yes, yes, Your prediction of potentially of Bitcoin being eight to ten bagger, though, is that is that based on the climb that we saw in the fourth quarter of last year? Because we're also saying that maybe it went too far too fast and maybe mm-hmm. was way overvalued to the upside at that point. Eight to ten so, times is okay. Is quickly, because BK is far. Listen, BK is the crypto baller. I see people painting graffiti BK now in the <laughs> I city. I saw that I, on the tweet, garbage I put it on the Twitter. That. With that said, if you, you can't back out what happened in December, but if that never happened and Bitcoin went from $400 or less when BK started talking about uh-huh. it to where it is now, we'd be saying, oh, my God, look at the move that Bitcoin's had. We're just sort of um, not confused, but I think that whole move up to 19000 has us all sort of screwed up. Last word. Yeah. Last word. You're buying both. Two ways to play the same thing. Square brings people on. Bitcoin is the underlying uh, payment system. Coming up, Snapshare is soaring more than 30% from the recent low, and there is something in the charts that suggests the run is far from over. We will break it down. Plus, it's a new spin on the fast pitch. Top strategist Tony Dwyer will step up to the plate with one group of stocks, he says, is about to take off. Tim and Guy giving him some serious pitch pointers right now. See how he does right after this break. Welcome back to Fast Money, Wall Street's biggest bull says it is time to bet big on one particular sector. Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity, joins us now for a special edition of the Fast Pitch. We'll call him a relief pitcher for now and a closer, depending on how this all goes. So, Tony, give us your best shot. (laughs) All right. Good deal, Mel. So the number one question I'm getting from investors is our productivity trade and more specifically the financial sector is not working. And we found that now is the time that you want to buy it. We have very strong earnings growth. We're going to be going, we're going to be going 25% higher in earnings. Now think about this. In the first quarter, earnings were supposed to be up 24%. They ended up 30%. We have easier regulation. They just President Trump signed into law a repeal or a softening of the Volcker rule, which will now enable the banks to start trading for their own account. Also, you've got a much lower regulatory burden and compliance burden on the smaller banks that are no longer considered too big to fail. And lastly, and most importantly for us, history. The yield curve is flattening, and that's making everybody think that, wow, this is a good time to get out of financials relative to the market, but that's not true. When you look at this, you've got 60 basis points on the 210 spread down to 40 basis points. Wouldn't you think that that's going to create underperformance for the S&P financial sector going forward? Heck no. You had a monster move up after you hit 40 basis points until the initial inversion. Think about it. The initial inversion was there. You had, look at that relative performance. The S&P 500 during this time frame was up 7%. The financial sector was up 13 I think Tony should come over for the question part of this. Come on over, Tony. Michelle will bring the chair in again. A two right. for Michelle tonight. That's a great job. Heavy duty. Right. Um, what? What? 
what was the time frame in terms of how three much months. time? Three months, you said? Mel, it was three months where okay. you went, again, you were below 40 basis points on the yield curve, the 210 spread. Everybody, I went back and looked at news items during the time, and people are saying, this is so bad for the banks. Their net interest margin is going to decline. They had gotten oversold, similar to now. And then you just lift it off the market and the financials. Uh, Tony, you mentioned the repeal of uh, some of the stuff in Volcker. So that means yeah. that these uh, companies can trade for their own account. How important is that to this bullish thesis? And what makes you think that these companies are set up to trade the way they did for their own account in the last decade, you know, that drove this profit growth in this decade? Dan, it's a great question. And, and I'm not going to say that the banks, I'm not a bank analyst, so I'm not going to say that banks are going to make X amount of money, but they have the opportunity to. Remember, the banks were going to be permanently um, valued like they were utilities because the regulators took away their ability to make money. That ability to make money is game on. The, the capital markets activity is terrific. Now you can actually provide liquidity to the market. God forbid you have a buyer and an illiquid tape. You didn't have that opportunity before, so I think it's a really important point. But most importantly, for the smaller banks, you're no longer too big to fail. You don't have that cost for compliance and other, other things like that. Yeah, Tony, do you, do you see that capital return issue also for banks, whether it's dividends or whether it's actually being able to buy back stock, um, getting a different type of investor on board with the banks that really weren't playing? I mean, the div guys or, I mean, that to me seems a catalyst that people aren't playing. That, thanks, Tim. I forgot about that one. That is a really big deal where you can actually loosen up the capital restrictions or the capital requirements mm -hmm. so that some of these banks that, again, were too big to fail or significantly financial institutions, mm -hmm. important financial institutions, they can now, instead of keeping that on reserve, they can actually give it back to the shareholders. They can increase their buybacks. And, and a big part of the reason that the financials went, they were supposed to be up 24% year-over-year in earnings growth, and they are up 30 because of the capital returns and the yep. buybacks. It's such a big deal. I think we're going to vote now. No more questions. Time to vote. See what these guys here on the desk <laughs> are doing. Idea. Are you buying or selling Tony's pitch on financials? Guy, I'm going to kick it off with yeah, you. Yeah, that's a good idea, Mel. I, I put on my little board Tony is money. He's sort of the Alan Wabowski of fast money. I the, know you don't know what? who that is. Yeah. The who? Google it. Al Wabowski <laughs> with an H. The mad, mad Hungarian. Hungarian. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, you're welcome. I think Sam. Tony, uh, he made a very compelling case. I just, we have night in after night, we have somebody come on and say buy the banks and they don't go up. They Neutral's not a choice, Dan. It is neutral because I'm not saying to sell them here, okay? But you're not, but you're but not, not buying. buying. Okay, you're not buying. I'm, I'm just not convinced, okay. although right. we made a great argument. Well, Dan, you're apparently not good enough. I mean, it's a good point. <laughs> neutral from Dan is bullish as a guess. Um, BK. <laughs> For me, it's a big buy. Wow. I mean, wow. I, listen, Tony's been spot on for the last two years. Why would you go against this guy now? Tim. That makes me probably the best yeah. short. I'm, I'm a buyer, oh, nice. Tony. I'm a buyer, Look Tony. Look at that depiction of Tony. That is some artwork. Thank you. That is a nice artwork. All right, three buys. Three buys on the desk and a neutral or I don't know what, kind of not a buy. A buy. Uh, we, though, want to know what you at home think. Are you uh, going to go over and vote? I hope you do in our Twitter poll at CNBC Ooh, Fast Money. Will Tony so get Tony tonight? <laughs> Oh, Tony, or will Tony, he get Tony. the time of his life? We'll reveal the results later in the show. Plus, Snap CEO Evan Spiegel suggesting his company is better than Netflix in an exclusive interview with CNBC earlier today. So, is he right? The traders will weigh in. Much more fast money still ahead. You're looking at a live shot of Cannes from, oh, actually, it was from earlier today. A charming resort town on the French Riviera lined with 
heavenly sandy beaches. It's also known for the Cannes Lions, the world's largest awards festival honoring the best in the creative and advertising business. And that is where CNBC's Julie Borson sat down with Snap CEO Evan Spiegel in his first TV interview since the company's IPO last March. She asked him about Snap's ongoing competition with other big tech names like Facebook, including about the platform's premium content. If you look at a business like a Netflix, for example, they invest a lot in tentpole shows that try to you know, get you to check out Netflix or subscribe. For us, our tentpole content is content created by your friends. And that's why it's so important for us to continue to protect that friend graph and make sure that people feel comfortable expressing themselves because that's what brings people back into our service every day. And so then, when you're done checking out your friend stories and you're bored, you can just scroll down and check out a whole world uh, of content on Snap. Spiegel may sound confident, but Snap's road since its IPO has been anything but. The social media stock is down a whopping 43% since then. Compare this to Facebook, who shares about a year and a half out from its IPO were already up 20%. But could Spiegel's words be a sign that a turnaround could come for Snap? Dan, what do you say? Uh, I do. I think that he's showing a level of uh, maturity that we wouldn't have assigned to him right after the company went public. And I think their ability to go out and kind of tell the story in a way that is kind of not hyperbolic. I, I think you should think about this as like not too different than after LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. They all went public. They took some uh, some time to get their messaging um, OK. And they took time for investors to get comfortable with the valuation. So to me, this one's probably going to bang around in the teens for a while. But I suspect this thing comes out at some point what? in a big but way. what is their message? Well, the message is very clear. What it. did he say? He just said they're going to protect the social graph. This is really important. So they're not, you know, they really want to be beholden to their users, not the advertisers right now. And then the other thing, when they talk about this is really the only AR pure play that is listed in the public markets right now. That's it, okay? So if you want to go along with him, who's got the super voting rights, and you want to take the time to do it, I think it probably ends up Instagram okay. not have an AR element? Well, oh, they do. But what I'm saying is, is okay. that... But I mean, I'm just saying, yeah, like, so Evan that's the, big thing. the question so, after yeah. question is, can does Facebook he have just copy, the time? copy, copy, copy? And they have been. And, and all the other examples of the companies that had to take time to digest lumps or however you want to put it, they didn't have one of the world's biggest tech companies with a That's right, in the same space. Right, and in the same been able space, to copy competing I mean, head to head. Well, you know, even when you've been critical, when one has been critical of Twitter, I mean, there's, there's no one else in that space. So um, what, what Snap has gone for is, I think, in the social media space, there's a scarcity of investments. And, and I think there's a lot of money looking to allocate there. And I think people are holding on to their Snap. I think they're waiting for a turnaround. But I, I agree, I don't see the catalyst in the short term. The cash burn last quarter was a concern, came in a lot bigger than people were and I think that's a worry. They have to do something at some point, which is to Dan's point. I think what Dan is saying is long term, this is worth looking at, but it's going to bang around here. I agree. My other point is, why were we playing some music of the girl from Ipanema, which is in Rio de Janeiro? I thought I was going crazy. It's yeah. has nothing to do with brand. I'm not responsible for the it's music choices on you this tonight, television Josh. show. I mean, really? No, I tried. No, because I they're folks at home asking the same. BK over there. I, I thought the same I, thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. agree. No, I, I took agree. out my Google right, Maps. Guys, but then what would you do? You know who the largest holder is here? It's Tencent. Remember the parent company is CNBC? It's Universal. They've half a billion dollars of this thing. I don't think you should worry about capital as it comes to this story. I think there's plenty of capital. They'd like to see these guys succeed because they don't want to have a monopoly dealing or, or a duopoly with just Facebook and Google. Still ahead. Recent tech IPOs have been on fire, but one trader's betting that the run could be over for one of those stocks right there. We'll give you the name. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. More Fast Money right after this.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out the Kramer Cam on Mad Money tonight. Jim Kramer is sitting down with the CEO of one hot pot company, MedMen. That kicks off at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And this, as pot stocks are topping the tape, the stock soaring on the possibility that the Canadian government could legalize recreational marijuana as soon as this week. Canopy Growth, GW Pharma, Med Relief, Afria, all moving higher. Uh, do you keep betting? It, it cleared the House of Commons in Canada. Now it's set now for the go Senate. Back to the Senate. Yeah. Who, who's uh, already articulated 45 or 46 amendments that they'd like to see to this bill, but it's going to happen. Um, it may not happen in the short term. But look, the, the story here for the Canadian producers is the addressable market outside of Canada. Um, and if you look at the big boys, they're the ones that, you know, Germany's probably the largest market in terms of the medical access. Obviously, most of Europe is starting to turn. There's been some news out in the U.K. about a boy who's denied his epilepsy medicine, his oil, and it was taken from him in Heathrow. He finally got it back. But there's a lot of pressure in the U.K. to legalize, and I think this is really the story. It's happening everywhere. Key? Right, listen, you know, we did a power pitch on GW Pharma, GW Pharma yeah. a while ago. I think the stock was trading 115. I think it, it peaked about 160. These stocks, they're, they're real businesses, and you're gonna, we're going to come in here one day, mm -hmm. and the lead of this show is going to be Budweiser makes an investment in the cannabis space. We're all going to talk about it. What does it mean for spirits? What does it mean for pharmaceuticals? It's a real yeah, Constellation's story already there. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, already they, there. they're first one into the, into the pool. Exactly. So. All right, let's move on. Um, you previously heard Snap CEO Evan Spiegel address concerns about his company, but while Snapshare started tanking just days after his IPO last March, more recent tech IPOs have seen the complete opposite action. Take a look at cloud security provider Zscaler. That's up a whopping 150% from its IPO March 15th, <laughs> while electronic signature company DocuSign has soared 125% since going public at the end of April. Rounding out this list, cloud storage company Dropbox up 100% from its March 20th second IPO. So can these recent tech IPOs keep up their hot streak? Dan, what do you think? Well, pretty interesting action. I mean, all these companies, like you said, went public in March. They kind of flatlined after having a nice initial pop. And then just in the last week or two, just started to take off. So to me, it's really hard to buy names like this up on a spike when liquidity is so low. Well, I'll tell you, and that's in the Dropbox space. Also look at Box as well. That's actually done pretty well. And you've got kind of a, a nice floor there that you can use as a risk reward. I tell you what, a lot of these software plays are, are, are crushing it. And I, I own Dropbox. I think their uh, ARPUs, their, their average revenues per user, their SKUs are going higher. They have a premium service. I mean, I think this story is actually working, and it's a name I stay long. I'm not, I'm not giving up after 100%. Uh, despite the surge, options traders are betting that one of these hot new tech IPOs run is almost done. So, Dan, what do you see in the options well, market? Well, just like we said, we just saw these stocks heat up over the last couple weeks. And sometimes it's kind of interesting to look and see what sort of options activity we see. In this case, in Dropbox in particular, uh, three, four times average daily volume today. And if you're looking for options activity to confirm it, I'd say that this was short-term traders taking profits. It was about 2,500 of the June 22nd, this Friday expiration, 40 calls. They looked like they were sold to close in bunches. So these were traders as it started to take off last week, starting to buy week out calls and now with a good profit in such a short period of time, closing out of them. So at least these traders are saying that this pop could have come to an end. All right. For more options action, full show is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. We do have some breaking news here on Tesla. Let's get to Phil Abo with the details. Phil. Melissa, with so much attention focused on whether or not Tesla hits its goal of building 5,000 model threes per week by the end of the month, an email from Elon Musk last night shed some interesting uh, perspective in terms of what might be going on inside the Fremont assembly plant. There uh, was an email that Elon Musk sent last night saying he was dismayed to learn this weekend about a Tesla employee who had conducted quite extensive and damaging sabotage to our operations. Those are the words of Elon Musk. 
won't go into the specifics of the damage to the operations. It has to do with some code and leaking some information to outside third parties. But in an email to employees, Elon Musk says, there may be considerably more to this situation than meets the eye. So the investigation will continue in depth this week. We need to figure out if he was acting alone or with others at Tesla and if he was working with any outside organizations. Please be extra vigilant, particularly over the next few weeks as we ramp up the production rate to 5K per week. This is when outside forces have the strongest motivation to stop us. And again, that was an email from Elon Musk obtained by CNBC. So guys, this is what we're going to see probably for the next week and a half or so. Maybe not specific to this question of employee sabotage, right. but to what's happening with production at the Fremont sure. plant. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Um, what popped into my mind, maybe I'm a conspiracy theorist, is a short seller paying off somebody within the company. Well, you know what? Based on nothing. Based on that nothing. They are I like the way motivated. you start to think like the rest of us now. I Listen, saboteur, French word, it also means the stock's going higher. All right. Up next, final trades. Results from the Twitter poll. Tony Dwyer's first ever fast pitch called Beginner's Luck. Tony Dwyer's having the time of his Woo! life. Yeah, Tony. <laughs> Winning over the Twitterverse his first time stepping up to the plate. Nice job, Tones. Final oh, trade time, Tim. I, I'll tell you what, he, he should quit while he's ahead because no one has been. I'm just kidding. That was a great job. <laughs> right but nobody wins on this show, even though. Anyway, Google, like that pick. What like is JD. winning com. anyway? BK. Having everybody agree with you. That's winning. Hashtag winning. Just like Bitcoin. Winning. You buy the BTC because they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. You want to win? BTC. Damn. All right, if you guys are buying uh, Square for the crypto stuff, I'd actually look to PayPal play that one for a breakout instead. World Cup just on fire. You know what else is? Apache, major double bottom in APA, Mel. All right. Cool. I'm Melissa Lee. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts now. Congrats, Tony, Tony. Dwyer. Come on, guys. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.